0: passages that we'll read this morning. The first is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. The, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sancti- sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, Offered himself unblemished to God. Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that so that we may serve the living God. The second is from Revelation chapter six, uh, chapter nineteen, verse six through eight. This is awesome. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. may be seated.
1: If you will pray with me. Father God, we open up Your Word now to feast in Your presence. God, I pray that You will help our minds to be singularly devoted to You right now, that we'll be thinking about Your words and thinking about Your will, be thinking about Your redemptive plan, Father, that we'll think about how You have saved us, how Christ has risen and reigns. Father, we praise You that there will be many Dominican Republics Republicans joining us at the feast that we just read about. We thank you that you brought our team back safely, Father. God, we also want to lift up Myla Harp, Father, as she's in the hospital. We pray, Lord, that her parents will feast on your presence and on your grace, even in a dark place like a hospital. God, be with them, hear their cry, Father, and know their suffering. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to have a wedding. Specifically, we're going to have a wedding for God and his people. It's going to be a great wedding, right? Um, and it comes off pretty inexpensively because we just get to read about it. So we're not going to have to decorate and have all the wedding cake and all that. Although if you want to bring wedding cake after the service to me, I will be very grateful. So, But I'm going to begin by talking about my own wedding. After months of preparation, months and months of preparation, our wedding day finally came. On October 16th, 2010, the love of my life and I invited our friends and our family to celebrate our union. It was a big day. I remember standing at the front of the aisle and watching my beautiful bride and her radiant pearl white dress coming down to meet me with gorgeously braided hair and brilliant blue eyes. Her father was weeping, I hope, good tears, as he placed her hand in mine, and together we walked to the top of the platform. Before the eyes of all, we proclaimed our love for each other. We vowed that our devotion for each other would be till death do us part. We sealed our vows with a kiss, and we were pronounced husband and wife. Our first act as a married couple was to invite our friends and family not to come and mourn that we had just been married, but to come and celebrate. We invited them to a feast. We had the best cheesecake that the world could offer made right there in Edmond, Oklahoma. We celebrated over M&M's and peanut M&M's and Reese's Pieces and wedding cake and all the sweetness that life could have to offer. We ate... We drank and we glorified God because of the beautiful union that He had allowed us to begin. People prayed over us. They spoke blessings over us. They hugged us. They kissed us. People toasted to our new life. We were married. And our journey had begun. Now, this year will be nine years. But when I look back on that day, I can't help but catch glimpses of God's relationship with His people. I mean, when we when we think about our wedding days, each of us individually, when you think about the first moment you saw your bride, when you think about the first moment that you heard those words, I now pronounce you husband and wife. When you think about that moment when you look at the wedding ring and you realize it finally means something, like it's been solidified, the covenant's been made. I think the most appropriate thing for you to do is to think about your relationship with God. I mean, after all, one of the number one metaphors that Scripture uses about God's relationship with His people is by utilizing marital terms. God is a husband. His people are a bride. God loves His people. He affectionately provides for them. He cares for them, walks with them, lavishes love upon them, and vows never to forsake her. Now, in many ways, Exodus chapter 23 through 24 can be seen as God's wedding day to Israel. A proposal is made. Vows are exchanged and the covenant is sealed. And there is even a reception, a covenantal feast. And yet, as we will see, Exodus 23 through 24 is simply a foretaste of an even greater marriage, of an even greater feast that is to come the marriage feast of the lamb so the old covenant that was made in sinai will give way to an even better covenant in jesus christ as we will see in this sermon i hope this is what i hope you'll take away what was true for israel at sinai in exodus it's true of christians today because of jesus god preserves and pre- preserves and prepares his people to eat and drink in his presence let me say that one more time god preserves and prepares His people to eat and drink in His presence. In Exodus 19 and 20, Israel watched and trembled as the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai. With a booming voice and earth-shaking presence, God declared His Ten Commandments. After the people begged for Moses to receive God's law on their behalf, He ascended up the mountain to talk with God, where God then expounded upon the laws he had just given by commanding 40 some odd additional laws that are case laws by which they could apply the 10 commandments that they had just heard. At the end of Exodus 23, we see a shift. God goes from being the law giver to being a promise maker. He doesn't just simply dish out a whole bunch of laws now. He's moving to actually making promises. And in this making of promises, God proposes to Israel. He gives a proposal to his people, laying out for them what he intends for them, what he wants for them, what he's inviting them into. He lays out for them the blessings of their obedience and the and the uh, the curses that come because of their disobedience. Now, underlying God's proposal to Israel are his promises to Abraham. Throughout this entire text, as we read through it, if we listen carefully, we're going to hear the drumbeat of Abraham's promise. We're going to hear the drumbeat of what God said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. So, for example, when you get to verse 22, God promises, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. That's nothing more than a restatement of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you. I will curse. And so the life that God proposes to Israel is a life that the promises of Abraham envisioned, at least in part. It's a life that God wanted and invited Abraham into, and this is a continuation of it. That being said, the people are kept secure by the promises of God. He is a God who will not break even one of his promises. Not one word of his good promises fail. Nothing can and nothing will happen to the people of God until God has accomplished everything that he has said. The people are preserved by and preserved for His promises. That's an important theological statement. And not just mere theology, it's an important application for us. God's people are preserved by and preserved for His presence. We're going to see the preservation in three ways in God's proposal. Number one, He promises preservation by His presence. Number two, He promises preservation for a place and number three he promises preservation for a purpose so let's look at the first one preservation by his presence God begins his promise saying behold I send you an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him But if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God promised to send an angel. I think it's better translated a messenger. He promised to send a messenger to guard Israel. And and the reason why I think it's better to call it a messenger is because of this. When we look at this angel and we debate on who this angel actually is, I think the biblical evidence would suggest that this is not just one of those angels with a halo and wings on This could be God himself. Now, my friends, I don't need to remind you, we are a Trinitarian people, right? We believe in three persons, one God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. We also believe that Christ wasn't made. He didn't begin to be Christ, the Son of God, when he came in flesh. Christ existed forever. There was never a day that Jesus didn't show up, that Christ wasn't there. He took on flesh and we now name him Jesus. But Christ has been there for all eternity. I'm going to suggest that this angel, this messenger, one who carries the words of God and leads God's people in a visible way, I'm going to suggest that this could be the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before flesh. And there's several reasons why I think this is the best way to read it. First, the angel is spoken of as distinct, distinct from God, And yet, he is also spoken of as God. If you want an example, let's just go to Exodus chapter 3. It says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And yet it goes on to say in verse 4, when the Lord saw Moses turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. The angel of the Lord, speaking from the bush, even goes so far to say in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. My friends, if this is an angel, that's a mere angel, just a mere created servant of God, then the angel just spoke blasphemy, it's exiled from God's presence, it's now reigning with Satan. But if this is the angel of the Lord and is actually an expression of God himself, then the angel is God. The messenger is God. Second, the angel's voice is to be treated as equal to God's. If the people disobey the messenger, then they disobey Yahweh himself. They are to obey his voice, and yet they are to do what God says. All I say. Obey his voice and do all that I say equal voice. Only one person in the rest of Scripture speaks for God as if he was God. The the biblical writers in the New Testament knew what they were saying when they began to say things. Jesus didn't teach like scribes and Pharisees. They didn't just say what God says. He spoke like God. He spoke as one who had authority. His voice equal. To the voice of God. That this messenger's voice is declared equal with God suggests that this could be God himself. Third, whatever the angel does also describes what God himself does. For example, God says, I send an angel before you to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Yet in later passages, I think specifically of Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and Amos 2. You see God reliving that and saying this. I led you 40 years in the wilderness. Wait a second, wasn't it the angel of the Lord that led the people through the wilderness? But yet God's saying, I led you through the wilderness. That God's messenger led the people through the wilderness is the same as God Himself leading the people through the wilderness. Further still, the angel holds authority to forgive transgression. If you go to the New Testament and you see Jesus, Jesus forgives The paralytic, right, he says uh, uh, your sins have been forgiven. And what did the scribes and Pharisees want to do? They want to accuse him of blasphemy. Why? For none can forgive but God alone. And yet we have an angel here in the Old Testament that says that he has the power over judgment and forgiveness. He has the power and the ability to judge sins. That's an authority that belongs to God alone. Now, finally, and this is the most decisive, I think. Notice that the angel's authority, the messenger's, in Hebrew it's it's very clear. It could be angel or it could be messenger. So I'm sticking with this messenger uh, option with it. Notice that the messenger's authority to judge sin comes specifically because what? God's name is in him. Notice that the angel doesn't just carry God's name, right? Other angels can say, I come in the name of the Lord. But no other angel in scripture ever says, I have the name of the Lord in me. This is someone whose very essence, very nature, very being is built on the fact that God's name is in him. He is distinct from God, and yet in him is God's very name, which means to call the angel God is a great is a great response because God's name is in him. He carries it. Now, I I can see some quizzical faces like, why in the world is this important? This is all theology, right? It's all stuff you'd expect to hear in a seminary and an academic debate. Well, here's why I think it's important, my friends. It's important because when God promised to send a messenger, he promised to send himself. God does not delegate the responsibilities of preserving his people to others. God does not delegate your protection, your preservation, your walk with him, his promises to others. God doesn't make promises and then expect everyone else to keep them. God makes promises he himself keeps. God doesn't promise his presence and then say, but I'm going to send somebody else in my stead. God himself comes. God himself is present. My friends, God's people are not preserved by guardian angels. God's people are preserved by a guardian God. That's the beauty of that theology. Now, to be sure, you see God sending angels to rescue people, right? You see it. When uh, Lot's in Sodom, God sends angels to rescue him out. You see it with Elijah and the Syrian soldiers and then they see the angels surrounding. In Psalm 91, verse 11, God promises to send angels to minister to His people to rescue them. But you never see an angel being the one responsible for carrying out the promises of God. You never see an angel who gets the glory for protecting God's people on this kind of covenant level. You never see an angel... Who gets the glory for walking before his people. That glory belongs to God alone. God himself stands guard over his people. God himself leads his people through the wilderness. God himself goes before them and brings them to the place that he has prepared. God's people are preserved by God's presence. It's amazing to see when God promises this angel, he's promising his own presence. Now, God's people are preserved by God's presence for a place that he himself has prepared. Now, this is the very same place that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17, which when you turn there, you find that it is going to be an everlasting possession for Abraham's offspring. God promised that when his messenger brought them to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, that he would blot them out. Those are the very same names, the very same people groups that you find in Genesis 15 to Abraham. When God says he's going to blot them out, it means he's going to bring judgment on them. Why? Because they're sinful. There are people who've defiled His land. They've turned to idols. They don't recognize Him as God. They have rebelled against Him. And so just like Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, God's going to drive out the Canaanites because of their rebellion, because they have set themselves up to be like God. The beauty of the land, however, is that it's not just any ordinary place. If we go all the way back to the song of the sea in Exodus 15, we see that this place that is prepared by God is his dwelling place. Chapter 15 verse 13 calls it his holy abode and the sanctuary which his hands have established. The land to which God's presence will lead is a land where God's presence will be felt and known by Abraham's offspring. God's presence leads to God's dwelling. That's what the land is supposed to symbolize. This is the land where God is. This is the land where God will dwell with His people, where God will set up shop, so to speak, where God will walk with His people in and among them and with them. It's going to be the land of God's presence. But what are they going to do when they get there? Why are they going to a land? Just to chill out? Just to lay out some hammocks and you know lay out on the Sea of Galilee and suntan? Float on the Dead Sea a little bit? What are they going to do when they get there? What's the purpose that God is bringing them to this place? Well, the answer is found in verses 25 through 26. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you. You shall care. You shall not miscarry or be burdened in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, subtle as it may be, This promise sets the agenda for the promised land, for life in the promised land. Specifically, if you listen carefully, it is a life that mirrors the life in Eden. In Genesis 2.15, God took up Adam and He placed him in the garden to do what? To serve. That's the Hebrew word. To work and keep. To serve in the garden. In the same way Israel is plucked out of Egypt and placed into the promised land to do something similar to Adam in the garden. They are to serve the Lord in the land. But it gets even more interesting. Not only will they serve God, but they will also enjoy God's blessing, eating blessed bread and drinking blessed water. In Genesis 1 and 2, when you go back and you read about Eden, it's a land filled with blessing. Everything. You get to experience God's blessing in all that you do. But then you get to Genesis 3, even the ground itself is cursed with thorns and thistles. And yet now we have a land that's all of a sudden known for blessing again. What do you think is supposed to be on the minds of these Israelites as they're marching to it? God promised in the garden, or God commanded in the garden for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And to fill the earth, right? Right? Well, in this promise in Exodus, God promises to make his people fruitful again. He's going to take away the miscarriages, take away the barrenness. Why? So they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. So they can re-accomplish, so that they can do what Adam and Eve failed to do. So that they can fill the earth with God's image and glory. So that they can fill the land with the image of the glorious God. Now that's when I when I think about that, and I think about even the fact that he name drops the Euphrates, right? That their border will go all the way to the Euphrates. That's that's significant. When you go back in Genesis two and you see that the that Eden was in a land located by the Euphrates, I just think about all that, and I think what God is proposing, what God is promising, in His proposal to Israel, is paradise, Eden, not perfectly regiven. Obviously, the people still die. But at least recaptured in part. That when the people live in the promised land, when they obey God, when they live in covenant life with God, they are known for blessing, for life, for fruitfulness, for joy, for a walk with the Almighty God, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, can you imagine, ladies, if your husband would have gotten down on one knee, pulled out that big rock and said, hey, you say yes, I'll give you Eden. But that's essentially what God does here for His bride. He proposes perfect paradise. What's more, these are all things that God will do. It's not like a, you know, your typical lazy bum husband that might propose and say, hey, I'll provide for you when you get a job. Right? Imagine how far that proposal will be. I'll take care of you as long as you make my coffee every morning. Right? Hopefully if the lady's smart, she'll say no. God doesn't do that. God God makes a proposal and he tells Israel what he will do. Israel will not take God's promises for themselves. This is what God is going to do on their behalf. If you just go through that little passage and highlight all the times that you see, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's over and over and over. God is proposing what he is going to do for his people. Now his proposal comes with only one stipulation. They are to make no covenant with the Canaanites and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, snare in the Bible almost always leads to death. Israel has a choice then between two things. They have this God who's on one knee proposing to them. Offering them security and safety and life with a loving husband Yahweh. Then on the other hand they have death and destruction and snare under the abusive husbands of the gods, these husbands or lovers who would rather abuse them and hurt them and leave them cold than take care for take care of them. The warning is not unreasonable. It makes sense because when we make a marriage proposal, when a man proposes to a wife, he obviously is asking her to make him his one and own, her one and only, right? He is obviously asking her, hey, I'm asking you to be solely devoted to me. Typically when a man has proposal on his mind, he's hoping that that means that the girl he's proposing to is not going to have a sideshow of lovers and boyfriends. Right. And what marriage, successful marriage has ever started off with? Yeah, as long as I can keep the other guys. Yahweh is doing exactly what a good suitor does. He's saying, if you want to marry me, I'm asking you to marry me. If you want to be in a relationship with me, I'm asking you to be in a relationship with only me. Don't take on other lovers. Be mine. Now, the proposal has been made, right? We hear this amazing proposal that God has given. Now, preparations must be done. After I uh, uh, asked my wife to marry me, it was months of preparation. My friends, I have never been so sick of looking at colors in my life. <laughs> we picked out a place. We picked out the dress. She picked out my tux. It was great. It was, a, it was a phenomenal time of preparation. Lots of excitement. And I just kept thinking with every decision the day came closer. Well, now we have preparations for Israel and Yahweh's wedding. A ceremony must be held. Vows must be exchanged. And this is exactly what you see happening in Exodus 24. In verses 1 and 2, God calls Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders to come up to the mountain. Before they do, however, Moses reads the law God gave him in chapters 21 through 23. And the people vowed with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's a vow. Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. So it's like writing your vows, right? Moses wrote down the words of the Lord, and early the next day he built an altar. Verses five through eight tell what happened next. That the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now the covenant ceremony was a bloody affair. Can you imagine going to a wedding feast where they just start sacrificing oxen and donkeys, or oxen and lambs and and all these goats. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're filling this place with burnt sacrifices and peace offerings. The altar, in some ways, represented Israel's relationship with God and their ability to approach Him. Now imagine you see this symbol, this altar that symbolizes your relationship with God and the ability to approach Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him. And Moses takes some of the blood and throws blood onto the altar. What do you think is being said? How is our approach of God founded? What is the basis of our ability to have a relationship with God? The blood of a sacrifice. That's what they see powerfully. They see blood covering the altar by which they may now approach God. So as the blood's thrown onto the altar, Moses, as the covenant efficient, began to read the book of the covenant. The people said again, they made their vows once more, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. It was as if Moses was saying, do you, Israel, take Yahweh to be your one and only God? And then they say, yes, we do. We'll do all that he says. We'll do all that's required of the covenant. Vows were spoken, but then the covenants made official when Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. That's quite disgusting. If you do that at your wedding to me, we got some talking to do. But he throws the blood on the people. The only other reference that we see blood being sprinkled on people, splattered on people, thrown on people, is when priests are ordained and when lepers are made clean. The idea behind it is that when blood touches a person, these defiled people, these unclean people, suddenly become clean. Again, think about what that might symbolize for them. Not only is their relationship with God based in blood, blood on the altar, but their own purity, their own cleanness, their own ability to come, with God, come to God with clean hands and clean lips and a clean mind comes from the blood of a sacrifice. Their entire marriage to Yahweh is based on blood. Based on something dying on their behalf. It declared a person Clean. So Moses takes the blood and proclaims, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By analogy, when Moses said that, this is like him saying, I now pronounce you husband and wife. The covenant had been made. God and Israel were officially married by the blood of the covenant. Now following the ceremony, God invited Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and um, the 70 elders to a reception. It's pretty cool coming up to the mountainside to have a reception with God. Now, God didn't allow all Israel to come up, which I think is another subtle indication that there's still some separation here. This isn't perfection. This isn't God's redemptive plan made complete. This is just one more step in God's redemptive plan. Not everyone is able to come up to the fiery presence of God. But these 70 elders come up as representatives of all Israel. So when the 70 went up, is as if all of Israel went up the mountain. Verses 10 through 11 describe the covenant feast or the wedding reception is what I'm calling it. That was held on the mountain. Now just, just, I, I, many of you are looking at your Bibles and looking at your, I just want you to close your eyes and listen carefully and try to imagine what this would have been like. At this wedding reception, they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Listen carefully to this. They beheld God, ate, and drank. Okay, go ahead and open up your eyes. Just You hear those words? The sweetness of that? He didn't lay his hand on them. They beheld God. They saw him. And they ate and drank. The feast where these people are eating and drinking in the presence of God and enjoying safety in His presence is representative of the ideal relationship God wants with this people. They beheld God. They stood on holy ground. Now what happens when an unclean sinner stands in the presence of God? <laughs> Death, right? Nobody can stand in the presence of God and live. So here we have these elders. And this is, the, this is the tension of the text. These elders who have just received the sprinkling of the blood are now able to sit in God's presence and not die. They can sit in His consuming, fiery presence and not be burned alive. And they're not just surviving. They're eating and drinking. Beholding God. Sipping wine, eating bread, eating meat, enjoying a feast in the presence of God. This is what God wants for his people. My friends, as simple as it may be, God has saved us to eat with us. The heart of God's salvation and the invitation to believe in Jesus and the invitation to have a relationship with him is also that we can have a dinner party with him and not die. <laughs> like we can eat and drink and behold God and live and celebrate good things happen when we eat together, good things, better things happen when we eat in the presence of God. If Israel were to remain faithful to God, feasting in God's presence in the Promised Land would be her future. It's a great image, I think, of where God's leading all of humanity. Now, we're going to look forward just a little bit. God called Moses to come up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone. These were written by God's own finger. Moses instructed the elders. Now, there's a bit of an ominous tone to this. Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, go to him. Now, if you've read ahead and you've read uh, Exodus 32, you know this is not such good news. Go to Aaron if you have a problem. It should be okay. Well, they're going to go to Aaron when they have a problem. It's not going to be okay. Verses 17 and 18 hint at what's to come. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and the sign of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, on the one hand, this is getting us ready for what's to come in the text itself. We're about to go through five chapters of tabernacle plans in the next week or so. Five chapters of tabernacle plans. What God is doing here, He's trying to make, He's going to make permanent when He gives the tabernacle to experience the presence of God and not die to experience eating and drinking and communion and fellowship with God and not be burned alive that's what God's going to give in the tabernacle but on the other hand it also prepares us for what's about to happen during those 40 days you would think that 40 days would be nothing if you and i could claim to have seen God's glory on the fiery and fire and cloud on the top of the mountain 40 days later we would hope that we would still be faithful to God right but 40 days after the wedding, the bride is seduced in, in, into an adulterous relationship with a golden calf. The marriage lasted a little more than a month. And Israel had already cheated on God. So as we're reading this, we're just like, okay, we know what's going to happen during these 40 days. And I I just think, you know, instead of shaming Israel, I look at my own heart and I think, you know, I'm not so sure that if I were in Exodus 32 that I would have been one of the faithful. I mean, everybody else is having fun. Would I actually have been bold enough in my own strength to not bow down to a golden calf? Would I have been the one faithful Israelite? I don't know. I think if we read this rightly, we see that all humanity, when offered a marriage relationship with God, we're all cheaters. We're all adulterous. When the prophets look back on Israel on these days, they call her a prostitute and that she prostituted herself with the 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 gods of the nations. They committed spiritual fornication. All humanity has done that to God. And if God had been a, a, a fair, let's just call it fair. If God had been a fair husband, I'm not going to call him just because he's still just. But if God had been a fair husband, he would have just left us, right? I mean, it's all fair. We cheated on. him. In fact, we see that happening in the Old Testament. Israel is so rebellious that it forces God to divorce her. The prophet Hosea is essentially a letter of divorce. They forced his hand. And when God divorces his people in Hosea, essentially what it means is he hands them over to their lovers. The gods of the nations. But here's the thing. Divorce did not settle the separation. There might have been a separation between God and his bride. There might have been a temporary divorce. But God promised that he was going to send his son, the bridegroom. That the bridegroom would take on flesh. That the bridegroom would come to save his bride. That the bridegroom would come, step into the prostitution ring to rescue her out of it. Step into the slums, into the ditches, into the into the um, brokenness, into the dirtiness, into the filth, into this bruised and battered existence that his bride is now enjoying. That he would step into it, carry her out of it, and rescue her. From heaven he came down and sought her. He came to bring a better marriage covenant between us and God. Jesus did what Moses never could. In the old covenant, Moses could only say, behold, the blood of the covenant. However, Jesus came and he established a far more superior covenant. Why? Because it was at a covenant feast where people were beholding God, eating and drinking, the Lord's Supper, that Jesus picked up the wine and he didn't say, Behold the blood of the covenant. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Moses could only speak of the blood of the covenant, but Jesus could say, my blood of the covenant. It's not a blood of bulls and goats. It's not a blood of oxen. It's a blood shed by the bridegroom himself. As if the bridegroom himself climbed up on the altar sacrificed himself in order to show love for the bride. Jesus' blood of the new covenant accomplished what the blood of the old covenant could never even dream to accomplish. The blood of Jesus accomplishes a better cleansing. As Israel, after Israel was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifices, their flesh was considered clean. Their outside, their bodies were considered clean. And yet when Jesus sprinkles us with his blood our hearts become clean. Not just our bodies, but our hearts. Hebrews 9:13 through 14 glories in this truth. It says this, "For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify and purify sanctify and bring the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, the sprinkling of Jesus doesn't merely cleanse that which is defiled, but it also makes what is dead alive. It brings dead works alive to serve a living God. The old covenant commanded Israel to serve the living God, But the new covenant of Jesus Christ enables us us to serve the living God. Totally different. One simply calls and commands. The other one equips and enables. And what is more, Israel's relationship with God was dependent on the continual sacrificing of animals. The necessity of this was simply, as it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So they got up day after day, year after year, offering sacrifices for sins. Nevertheless, perfect redemption could not be accomplished by the Old Covenant sacrifices. It was not eternal redemption. That all changed when Jesus offered Himself. According to Hebrews 9, Jesus secured an eternal redemption, not through the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood. Splattering His own blood on the altar. Showing that our relationship with God doesn't need to be re-splattered with blood every single day. Doesn't need to be re-splattered with blood year after year. Jesus splatters His blood on the altar once and it's sufficient. We're done. Relationship secured. Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 12 expound on this further. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 says, it adds to it, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being cleansed. His offering was effectual and permanent. No more sacrifices needed to maintain a walk with God. No more sacrifices needed to bring the forgiveness of sins because Jesus, as the Lamb of God, offered Himself on the cross and brought the perfect sacrifice for our sins forever. He died, He was buried, and He rose again, showing that life with God was now eternally possible through faith in Him. The bridegroom has saved his bride, and at this moment, He is preparing a place for her. We are a people that are being preserved and prepared for the place Christ is making ready. The bridegroom will return for his bride. He's making a house for you and I to live in as his bride. And just think about it. One day the preparation will be complete. The bride of Christ will finally be ready. Peoples of every language, people of every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity will be equipped and ready to sing the praises of the bridegroom. Our neighbors will be washed clean with the gospel. The nations will be sanctified with a blood that speaks better than Abel's. The Lamb of God will return and then we'll hear the bridal marts. And this is the bridal march sung by the multitudes. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What a great bridal march that is. The bride has made herself ready. My friends, this is not just a huge biblical theology of God marrying His people. This has real applications in our lives. How does the fact that we know that God plans, to, has planned and has secured and, and, and accomplished the redemption of His bride and is going to bring perfection for His bride, how does all of that The fact that He preserves and prepares His people for communion, for fellowship. How does that govern our day-to-day existence? How does that govern our here and now? I think it governs our here and now in two specific ways. First, it governs our identity. And second, it governs our mission. Let's look at identity first. Knowing that there is a wedding and a wedding feast coming governs our identity. Out of all the titles that the people of God label themselves with, by far, one of the most important is that we are the bride of Christ. We are those who have entered into an eternal relationship with the Lamb of God. We are those who have been invited to the marriage feast, and as Revelation 19:9 9 says, "Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." Your job titles will fade. So will your educational degrees, your social media status, your temporal accomplishments, your 401Ks, your bankrolls, your clubs, your memberships, your house, and everything else attached to this present world. At the end of the age and on into eternity, God's people will forevermore be known as the bride of the Lamb. There's nothing more that needs to be said about us. They don't need to know how smart we are. They don't need to know how rich we are. They don't need to know how popular and how cool we are. All they need to know about us is we're loved by the beloved. That's what lasts. That thought alone should brighten your darkest days. Come what may, a bad diagnosis, a layoff, a heartbreak, a devastating disappointment, frustrations with your young children, an empty bank account, a tragic loss. Nothing separates you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing separates you from the love of your husband, your bridegroom. His love is eternal. We are our beloveds and our beloved is ours forever. It is indeed till death do we part. But the thing is, Christ defeated death, so we never have to part. Let that soak in for your identity. Who are you, church? You're the bride of the Lamb. You may be ugly now, But when Christ does his good work, we'll be a radiant bride ready for the wedding day. Clothed in brilliant, fine linen, white with the deeds of the saints. We're just in preparation mode. The wedding day's coming, but it also affects one other thing. This is the last thing we'll talk about. Knowing that there's a wedding feast coming governs our mission. It governs who we are. That was what we just talked about. It governs what we do. Specifically, our mission is to prepare ourselves for the feast and to invite others to the feast as well. There are a number of ways we prepare ourselves for the feast to come. One of the primary ways that we as a church prepare ourselves for the marriage feast to come is by taking part in what we're going to take part today, the Lord's Supper. Communion. Where we symbolize what's going to happen. We symbolize. We rehearse what has been accomplished in Jesus. Through the Lord's Supper, we rehearse the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf as Jesus' body was broken and His blood was spilled. We eat, we drink, and we behold God. And we celebrate because that's our future. When we take this meal, we reclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Can you imagine how amazing it will be that we've partaken our last Lord's Supper? I wonder how amazing... Will we even know? I don't know. I don't think so. We've well, partaken in the last Lord's Supper. Christ comes. And then we have the marriage feast. No more little bites of bread and little sips of drink. We get, we get the bread of the kingdom. The wine of Christ and we will eat, drink, and behold God forever. My friends, this, what we're going to do today, the Lord's Supper, this is an appetizer of what's to come. We celebrate. We also prepare ourselves by, get ready for this, you introverts, by getting together and hanging out. Dinner parties are great. Dinner parties among Christians are even better. I love it when people get together as Christians. I love it even more when Christians invite their lost neighbors because they see us hanging out. They see us eating together. And we're basically telling them, hey, don't you want this with us for all eternity? We're getting together because at the end of the day, we're a people who have been saved to enjoy eating and drinking together in the presence of God. My friends, if you think you don't like people, don't like to hang out with your brothers and sisters, boy, you're going to hate heaven. Because that's where God's bringing us. We're a family. Now, that doesn't mean that we just get together at each other's houses and just hang out with Christians. Because the fact that there's a wedding feast coming means that we must also invite others to partake in the feast. To join in. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying when he says this? He's revealing what he wants. He wants people from all nations, from all over the earth, to be gathered around the same table with the likes of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with the likes of the patriarchs. And that all these people are going to get together. All these different shades and colors, languages, speaking at the same table, eating bread, Next to the great high king of the universe. That's what Jesus wants. He doesn't have segregated tables for the different nations. We all sit together at his table. Many from east, west, north and south. Coming together. One massive dinner party. Now what does this mean? It means we must go send out the invitation. My friends, why do we do evangelism and missions? Not because it's our duty, but because there's an amazing, majestic feast coming and we want to see them seated at the table. Because we know how sweet the wine's going to be in the presence of Christ. We know how crisp and perfect the bread's going to be when Jesus blesses it. We're going to know what it's like to experience the warmth of the presence of God and have every Promise and Jesus fulfilled. In Revelation chapter 12 verses 17 and 18, you find one thing. It's the Spirit and the Bride, the Church, who together send out the invitation, come. Come. That invitation extends as we proclaim the gospel to all peoples, all languages, And what a beautiful moment when we see all those people that we've shared the gospel with who have believed being ushered to their seat at the kingdom's table, where they, as the people of God, will eat, drink, and behold their God. Let's pray. Father God, as we get ready to partake in the supper that you have so graciously given us, God, I pray, Lord, that you will help fill our minds of the supper that's to come. Father, the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us that you have established a relationship with us through the blood of Jesus, through the broken body that was on the cross. And so, Father, as we now take these things that symbolize the the blood of Jesus, the broken body, Father, I pray now that you will see how gracious you are to give us a seat at the table. God, we love you. Prepare us as the bride. Make us ready. And Father, I pray that this church here in Ovilla, Texas, will be ready to see her bridegroom when the day comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.